Hey Grace Fellowship, believe it or not, summer is right around the corner. And from June 24th through July 1st, our senior pastor, Rex Keener, will be teaming up with Pastor Tony Evans to deliver a week of daily chapel messages at Camp of the Woods, a Christian vacation camp just a few miles north of us in Speculator, New York. Now, if you've ever been to Camp of the Woods, you know this place is amazing. Besides the mountains and the lake, they've got beautiful accommodations, delicious food, and plenty of fun activities for the whole family. You can learn more about Pastor X's speaking dates and about Camp of the Woods on our Facebook page or by visiting gracefellowship.com backslash camp. Hey, how's everyone doing today? Oh, that was so tepid, it was sad. All right, how's everyone doing today? Now, now that's the rowdy crowd that I was expecting, you know, when I uh, was asked to share the word today. You know, I am so excited. I haven't seen you in a while, right? I'm so excited to share the word today because here's what I'm really excited about. Starting next week, Pastor Rex is going to be starting a new series on Abraham, a daring faith. Now, Abraham is one of my favorite, favorite kind of... uh, historical people in the, in the Bible, right? And I believe uh, you understand Abraham's story, you understand the scriptures. I mean, it is just awesome, awesome, awesome. And today what I wanted to do was kind of prepare you, in a sense, to receive this new series on Abraham. So, here's the thing that I, I'm going to require you to do. Can I require you to do something? right? First of all, you have to get excited about Abraham. Yes? Abraham. That was like a golf clap, isn't it? Just kind of like, he's like, oh, that was a nice shot. Oh, that was very nice. Okay. Um, The other thing is that, you know what? I'm going to challenge you to bring your Bibles to church. (gasps) Who heard such a thing? You need to bring your Bibles to church. If you have your Bible app, you can open up your Bible app as well. All right? I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles. If you have your Bibles with you today, open up your Bibles to Genesis 11. All right? I'm going to give you a little hint where that is. It comes before Genesis chapter 12. All right, now I've given you the secrets to the scriptures. But turn to Genesis chapter 11, whether it's in your Bible, right, or in your Bible app, all right? And uh, we're going to kind of be sharing from that. But before we begin, and I'm going to give our technical people a really good place, all right, let's pray together. Can we pray? Let's pray together. Father, we are so uh, privileged and honored that you continue to welcome us into your most holy and divine presence. And God, as we open up your word today, we pray that um, you would anoint your word, that the power and truth of it would um, knock us off balance in such a way that our lives would be different here in the moment. God, we want to continue to worship you in the way we hear your word, and most importantly, put it into practice. Open our minds, open our hearts, that we may understand it fully and accept it deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I would tell you that everyone wears some sort of glasses. See that? That everyone uh, wears a lens. 
And uh, I think I can prove it to you uh, that everyone wears a lens, that everyone has one. Whether we know we wear one or not is a matter of self-awareness. That's all it is. But I think I can prove to you that all of us wear a paradigm-shifting lens. Would you suppose me with me that one day um, uh, you were on a long business trip or you were traveling and you were on a train or an airplane coming back? And on this trip, for work, you have found yourself with uh, lots of things on your mind. It was a very strenuous day. You've heard numbers and graphs and things were shown to you where you're not meeting the goal. So on this trip home, your mind is racing. What am I going to do to meet the goals? Because you're thinking, if I don't meet these goals, you know what? They may have a different type of conversation with me about, you know, we need someone to hit these goals. So as you are sitting in your seat, the seat that you bought a ticket for, sitting in front of you, you see these kids. Sitting in front of you, you see these kids. What do you see? What are you feeling right at this moment? What would you like to say to the dad that is staring out the window, seemingly completely unaware of the mayhem that his kids are creating? Now, I tell you, how you view these kids is at this point, very much dependent upon the lens in which you view them through, right? And your opinion of their father is as well. Maybe you're tired, you're cranky, you're discouraged, you're stressed. Everyone has a lens through which we understand our environment, our reality, a view of ourselves and our needs. Your reality with these screaming kids is that you're going to have a very bad flight home. That's your reality. Any rational person would think that they deserve some semblance of peace and quiet, personal space, right? For a flight that you paid good money for. With all the stuff that's going on in the news about flights, you paid for this seat. And your need right now is that for that dad that's staring out the window to get a clue, right? Oh, you're going to give him a real clue. You roll up your sleeves, you raise your hand, and you press that button right above you for the flight attendant. And you're hoping that they drag this guy and his kids off this plane. Yeah, baby. Right? And in your reality, you think that'll teach that dad the correct parenting technique. Yeah. What do you see and what do you feel? Now, let's say, um, what if I showed you a picture of President Clinton? What do you see and what do you feel when you see him? Or maybe if I show you a, a picture of President Bush, what do you see? What would you like to say to him? Or maybe if I show you a picture of President Obama, what do you see? How do you feel? 
How about this president? No, 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 hold on, come on, all right? Who do you see? What are you feeling? What in the world would you like to say to him? Now, some of us have very guttural, visceral reactions to some of these faces based upon a democratic lens or a uh, Republican lens or an independent lens or some other lens that you view them through. Inevitably, our lenses are by default me-shaped. Me-shaped based on my reality that are defined by my desires, my hopes, my needs, my ambitions, and my very humanity. Everything is viewed through this lens. So unless we are aware of our me-shaped lenses, we tend to have skewed and perhaps even distorted views of everything around us. Even our view of God. Think about it. And this can be problematic. A view of God that is me-shaped by nature. This is a big problem. And I tell you, it's a big enough problem that God took action a long time ago in Genesis 11. Turn with me to Genesis 11, and let's read this together, the first nine verses. I'm going to read it out of the ESV version, but whatever version you have, follow along with me. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all of all the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, most of us know this story, the Tower of Babel. And most of us, let's be honest, once we uh, heard about it or read about it and uh, studied it in Sunday school, we passed by it and didn't think about it again. Because we just thought, oh, that's where all the earthly languages come from. And we, we um, reason that the story is in chapter 11 in Genesis to give us a, um, an origin of all the earth's languages. I want to tell you that's not true. Now, there, that may be where the languages came from, but that's not the purpose of the story. 
you know, when we um, think about Genesis, we think about origins. Is that, isn't that right? We think about origins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that story. But I want to give you a context for the first uh, uh, 10 chapters of Genesis. As well as uh, that Genesis tells us how, who, and how everything was created. But for the first 10 chapters of Genesis, there is one narrative, a, pre a predominant narrative, and that is the progression of sin. We learn that God created the heavens and the earth and all the creatures, the stars, the moon, the creatures in the sky, the creatures in the sea, and when he had created them, he called them good, right? And he created man in his own image, and then he created women. And then something horrible happened. They disobeyed God. Sin entered the earth. Sin entered into our history, and it just got worse from there. And from that point on, you can read, and I hope you read it. I hope you, if you've never read it, I hope you read it, because you, from that point on, all the way through chapter 9 and 10, you read about how it got worse and worse. A brother killing a brother. Right? How wickedness spread throughout the land that God almost felt like he had to start all over. We know that as the flood narrative. It's how sin progressed and advanced. So there's this one narrative. It's called the sin problem. And that's where we get this idea of the sin problem. Or we call that the Eden problem. But I tell you, there's two problems in Genesis. There's two problems. The first problem is the Eden uh, problem or the sin problem. But when we get to chapter 11, we get to a turning point in Genesis. We get to a turning point. It is no longer the progression of sin we are introduced to the second problem. The Tower of Babel story introduces us to a brand new problem. Now, you may, uh, you may think of, uh, thought of the stories like, well, you know, I always thought, and, and I'll tell you, this is what I thought when I was growing up, that um, they built this really, 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 really high tower Right? And I remember watching this movie. I don't remember what movie it was. Some dude with a lot of makeup on gets on top of the tower, takes a bow and arrow, and like shoots it up into the clouds. And all of a sudden you hear, ow. No, I actually, you don't hear that. But it's like, oh, okay, they built a, they got a little close to heaven. Well, that's not really true. You know, what, what they built was actually what they called a ziggurat. A ziggurat. Believe it or not, we, we actually have, this is what a ziggurat looks like. That's how it's spelled. We actually have some of the ruins from that millennia that still exists today in, in the area of Babylon where they existed. But it's called a ziggurat, and it looks like a pyramid, doesn't it? Right? 
But these ziggurats is actually solid. There's no rooms inside. So that's the difference between uh, ziggurats and pyramids. And the only thing that kind of um, these ziggurats, the purpose of these ziggurats was actually, um, it was a staircase, a revolving staircase. And once, uh, sometimes it was a staircase straight up to the top. And you see this room up there. It was called the Gate of the Gods, Right? So um, what this represented was not necessarily, it wasn't a temple. It was, um, if you read the, the passage, they said, let us build the city and a tower. So it was actually, uh, uh, it reflected the urbanization of the area. And what ziggurats uh, represented was kind of um, the religious kind of center of the city. Uh, you know, archaeologists found more than 30 in an area, right? So many of these existed. And each ziggurat was, um, uh, was built for a specific god, a specific deity. Now, <clears throat> as you understand what this ziggurat was, you know, people didn't live around this ziggurat. If you, uh, the next picture, if you look at it, this is maybe a, a top view from it. There's this cartoon, this other picture that I want you to see. It seems like people lived around it, but usually they didn't really live around it. It was actually more commercial buildings. It was the commercial center of an area. Now, why is that important? Well, I, I think because it gives the sense that uh, people were urbanizing. They were gathering together. It was a city. They were building a city, Right? So why would God be upset with people if they were building a city? Most uh, people will say, well, maybe it was pride. There was this verse, right, that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Why is that so bad? It, to make a name for yourself wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, when you think about going into chapter 12 and into the Abraham uh, narrative, God actually promises that has a, a very good thing to leave a legacy for your, for your family. So to say that it was pride about wanting to make a name for yourselves, I'm not quite sure if that's a, gr a really good argument why God may have been angry or what, what God's um, offended him about this. Some people will say, well, they were disobedient. You know, God told them, be fruitful and multiply and go over, fruitful and multiply all over the earth. So he must have been upset that they were gathering together in a city and, you know, kind of huddling together. Well, why is that such a good thing? If you're going to multiply, you kind of have to huddle together with people, right? Let's be honest. They weren't multiple. So we, I'm not quite sure if that's the best argument. So what was the offense? There's a theologian by the name of John Walton who wrote a fantastic, fantastic commentary on this. He said, in the process of urbanization, what these ziggurats represented was a distorted view of God. Now, I told you that these ziggurats, the purpose was, it was a... Um, a stairway all the way up to the gate of the gods. And up in the gate of the gods, you know what was there? There was a bed. Yes, there would be a bed. 
and a staircase that led all the way up to it. And at the foot of the ziggurat is where the temples would be, where people would come to worship this God. And their um, expectation was they built this as not a, uh, necessarily a stay, stairway to heaven, right? It was actually a stairway for the gods, their deities, to come down, walk down the staircase, and receive the worship from their people. Isn't that interesting? That was the purpose of the ziggurats. So their view, when they built this tower, their view of deity was extremely distorted. They were actually reflecting the pagan ideology of deity in their contemporary Babylon. And this was the key structure that reflected that ideology, that theology. That was problem number two a distorted and diluted view of God. The Babel problem, I would call it, right? The Babel problem. Now, we, we have to ask the question, why is that such a dangerous thing that God thought it necessary to scatter people? Let me ask you this. Why would that be so dangerous to us to have a diluted and distorted view of God? I would tell you a view, that view would strip God of his sovereign power. And this is what I mean. If we had that view of God that we're going to build a building, and our view is that, you know what, God, you come and be among us. You um, be like us. We're going to put a bed there. You're gonna, we're going to have stairs there. It is imposing our humanity upon him. It's this idea that now we are no longer, we are no longer thinking that we have been formed in his image, but now we, our view is that he is going to be viewed and formed in our image. If that was our view, think of this. He would then be a God that has needs from us. And any God that has needs from us is not a God that we follow because of his character, but a God we follow because of what he can provide for us. In effect, he becomes a God that we control. Let me say that again. He becomes a God that we control. He does what we want him to do when we want it and how we want it. It's as, it's as if our view of God has turned him into Santa Claus. This is in effect a diminishing of God's sovereign power. And it's in effect, redistributing of his power to us. 
what the tower represents is that no longer are we viewing God, that which in whom's image we've been formed, but rather now he is formed in our image, representing and reflecting our human standards and our needs. The danger then becomes, sooner or later, that's the God we worship. An image of God that's fashioned after our own image, or at least whom we want him to be. You know what that is? It's a form of idolatry. A distorted view of God leads to what scholars would call paganism. Paganism. A diminished and reduced view of who God is. And if we're honest, and if we're honest, there's a little bit of paganism in all of us. We try to fit God into a box. A box that's sized just big enough or just small enough for us to fit into our lives. If we're honest, God revolves around our schedule. He revolves around our ambitions and our plans. And when God becomes a bit uncomfortable or it seems like he is pushing into our own personal space, we say, off limits, God. We want little or nothing to do with him when that happens until we need him again. He's the genie in the bottle that we call upon. Now, none of us have that view of God, do we? I hope not. Because that's paganism. But the truth of it is, there's a little bit of paganism in all of us. Or perhaps our view of God becomes that of a mythological God. So much unknown that God is no longer anyone you can know, but just stories, impersonal. Is this the God you know? And if so, then the danger becomes that of an unbelievable, impersonal, and uncaring God of wrath, or God of judgment, or merely a God of love and no judgment. Basically, he becomes whomever we want him to be or need to be at different points in our lives. Again, a pagan view of God. See, the Babel problem was a serious one. Simply because the trajectory of the people were that they had forgotten who God really was what his character was. Let me remind us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created man and women, the stars and the sky, the moon, the seas, the creatures in the air and in the seas and on land. And he saw what he had created, and it was good. And he created us, you and me, in his image. 
We bore the divine image of God upon our lives. The image of the divine. Those were the two problems. The two narratives that we find in Genesis. The Eden problem, the sin problem, verses chapters 1 through 10 and 11. We are introduced to the second problem. The view of God that was diluted and distorted. So the question really arises, how was God going to solve this? Right? I, I, I encourage you to read through Genesis. Oh, it's such a great novel. It really is. How is God going to solve it? Well, I'm going to tell you how he solves the sin problem. You, you just heard it just a few weeks ago, right, on Easter he solves the sin problem on Calvary's hill. Do I hear an amen? Right? The sin problem is solved on Calvary. But how was God going to solve the Babel problem? Oh, here it is. Here it comes. Well, if it's a problem that they don't know me, they've forgotten me, He starts to solve the Babel problem through covenants. Say that word with me. Covenants. In the coming chapters, we see that God reveals himself to very specific people in order that he may reveal his character to his people. And how? Through covenants. Through covenants. You're going to hear more and more about this. I love covenants. The life that you and I have in Jesus Christ, if you call him Lord and Savior, if you love him and have a love relationship with Jesus, every month we point you to some elements of bread and juice that harkens back to the new covenant that reflects the relationship that was missing. God solves the sin problem on Calvary. God solves the, prob- the Babel problem through covenants. Look, the point is this. Our view of God defines our reality. My view of God defines my reality when you think about it. It could define it in a skewed, distorted way. Or it could define it perhaps in a clearer way. As the psalmist wrote, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Wow. That defines my reality. I don't know about you. Look what Paul wrote in Acts. The writer of Acts, he wrote, in him we live and move and have our being. 
that gives you some context for my, your reality. When we have a correct view of God's sovereignty and his character, we are then and only then in a position to truly see our sin, how God sees our sin. My view of God defines my view of my sin. Romans 3, 20 and verse 23, he writes, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And everyone knows verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When my view of God is clear, my view of sin as well, is very clear. And when that happens, guess what else comes into view and into focus? If I understand my own sin, my view of God will define my need for a Savior. Jesus. If you know these verses, would you same with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Yes. But John goes on. He says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whosoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. My view of God defines my reality, my sin, and my need for a savior. How clear is your view of God? Are you willing to take your lenses off to view God as he truly is? Can I tell you, it takes courage. It takes humility. It takes an admission that you may have lenses on that distort the way you see him. It may need for you to admit, I have a little paganism in me. That's a hard one. How big is your view of God? How accurate is your view of him? Do you know him? And as God solves the problem once and for all, the sin problem with the sacrificial death of his one and only son, Jesus, and ultimately his resurrection, he invites us to know him through his resurrected son, Jesus. If you know Jesus, then you know the Father. That's what the word of God says. That's what he says. And for you to make the decision to know Jesus, I mean really know Jesus, not just to know about him, is an act of faith. 
And for some of us, it will have to be a daring faith. Oh, interestingly enough, that's what the next series is called. A daring faith, not just words repeated, not just an act, but by the complexities of simple faith, which Pastor Rex will speak into in the next coming weeks. I'm so excited about it. Are you willing to take your lenses off? Hey, remember these kids? Remember how you felt coming home from a long trip, maybe on a train or in an airplane? You probably had made some sort of conclusions of them, but more so especially the dad who seems to be clueless. But what if I told you that, yes, they were on your flight, they were flying home to their new home, closer to their grandparents, because they had just buried their mother. Now what do you see? Different kids? No. A different dad? No. What has changed? It's you that has changed. You took your me-shaped lenses off and saw clarity to the situation. All of a sudden, you don't mind the kids being upset as much. And you're not so judgmental about the dad who's staring out the window in grief and in mourning. Nothing has changed in the situation except that you took your me-shaped lenses off. And you're no longer thinking about how tired you are how cranky you may be or how discouraged or the woes me that I have so much work to do. But all of a sudden you see something different because your me-shaped lenses are off. Let me show you this picture. What do you see? I challenge you to take your me-shaped lenses off. You know what I see? I see our sin problem gone. Do I hear an amen? amen? I see the love of God for us. Amazing. So what do I ask of you today? Can I speak to those of you that have, um, you're still exploring Christ? 
You have yet to take that step of daring faith. You continue to come to grace or to church because you know what? Something's drawing you. I can tell you what that is. God is compelling. But you know what I want to challenge you to do? If you have yet to take that step of faith, that in the next four to six weeks, would you pray that God would draw you to make that step of faith? Taking your lenses off and saying, God, I see you. And because I see you, I see my sin. And because I see my sin, I desperately need you to save me. And when you get to that point, I hope I'm there. Because I want to pray with you. And I want to just embrace you and say, welcome to the family. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Who would have thunk it? The Tower of Babel, a turning point in the scriptures in Genesis. I pray that you would instill and plant a seed in all of us a desire to see you clearly. God, perhaps some of us do hold these tendencies that point towards paganism. And it's so hard to say, but it may be true. God, we never want to fit you in our box. We don't want you revolving around us. God, I pray that we would be bold enough to yield to you that our lives would be revolving around you. I guess the last question, God, is how do we do this? How do we get to that place? Perhaps it's simple for all of us, whether we're, we're exploring Christ or beginning in Christ or we're close to Christ or if we're even Christ-centered in our spiritual journey. That, God, we would humble ourselves and we would yield to you. We would yield to your son, Jesus. God, open our eyes. Open our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.